What's up, young adults? How you guys doing? You good? Hey, real quick, just by a show of hands. First time here, just pop them up real quick. If it is your first time here. Hey, we want to say welcome. We hope that uh, tonight you feel at home. We want you to know just straight up, we unashamedly love Jesus. We worship Jesus. Um, and so if you've been coming here for a while, I want to challenge you to engage tonight. If it's your first time coming, I want you to just kind of sit back and experience it. Open yourself up to the possibility that maybe God is real. Maybe Jesus is who he says he is. And maybe, just maybe, he's got a plan and some intentionality towards you for your life. Maybe God is good. Maybe Jesus is real and he loves you and he wants a relationship with you. And so tonight, I just hope that everybody gets something from an encounter with God. Tonight is one of my favorite nights of the year. It is our Life Group launch night. Give it up for Life Group launch. We have 20 plus people that have decided to open up their homes, open up their apartments, maybe even open up their parents' basement. I'm not too sure for the opportunity to take this community at large and maybe break it down a little bit into a smaller community where we can get to know each other's names, share stories, and and do life alongside one another. And so, because after service, we're gonna be out in the lobby finding groups, engaging in community, I'm gonna do my best to be quick. Now, every time a pastor says that, you know, it's probably like the longest sermon they've ever preached, right? But I'm gonna do my best to be quick, to be concise, so that we can spend some time out in the lobby. And so, with that being said, if you have your Bibles, we're gonna jump right in. And we're going to go to two different places. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 4, the very last verse in chapter 4. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 25. And then we're going to go to Matthew chapter 9, uh, verse 9. So two places, extra spiritual, mark your Bibles. Boom. All right, Matthew chapter 4. We're going to jump in. Here we go. It says, great crowds followed him, being Jesus, from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on a mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples, they came to him and he opened his mouth and he began to teach them. And we're gonna to jump to Matthew 9, uh, verse 9. Here we go, it says, And Jesus, he passed on from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. And he said to him, Matthew, come and follow me. And Matthew got up and he followed Jesus. And as Jesus reclined at the table in Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they were confused and they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and with sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well, they don't really have a need of a physician, but those who are sick, they do. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but I came to call the sinners. And so the title of my message tonight is this, it's Mountaintops, Door Frames, and dinner tables. If you're taking notes, we all know that they get you a better seat in heaven, a little bigger yard, a little, you know, little pool in the back. If you take notes, got to show the angel when you get through the pearly gates. But the title of my message is Mountaintops, Door Frames, and Dinner Tables. Let's pray and then we're going to jump right in, all right? Lord Jesus, we love you so much. God, we're so thankful that we get the privilege and the opportunity to come to a place where we're not persecuted for, for worshiping you. 
And God, I am very aware that I can do very little on my own. And so we're asking that your Holy Spirit comes tonight and meets with us. Because when your spirit's in this room, then people that are having a bad week can find joy that's unexplainable. When your spirit is in this room, those who might be physically ill or maybe they're wrestling with something in their soul, God, your spirit is their healer. The Bible says that when Jesus is lifted up, He'll draw all men to himself. And so God, our only goal tonight is to lift you up, to make Jesus look and seem even more beautiful than what he is. And he's the most amazing person in the world. And so Jesus, we magnify you. We look forward to hearing your word, sharing in it together, and, and just worshiping your name and, and getting involved in community. And so Jesus, we love you so much. It's in your name we pray this, amen, amen. All right, growing up, I was a church kid. How many people in here can relate and kind of know what I mean when I say a church kid? All right, I wore your standard church kid apparel every single Sunday on the way to church. That is your pleated khaki pants and your uncomfortable polo shirt. That is the church kid uniform. I was a church kid. And the church that I went to, was more on, let's just say, the charismatic end of things. And what I mean by that, it's a gracious way to say, our services could go anywhere to an hour and a half, two hours. And as a church kid, you gotta learn to survive when those are the rules. Like, when the spirit leads, you could be there for a while. You know what I'm saying? And so as a church kid, I kinda had rules of survival. And one of the things that I would do, and maybe you could relate, in my church growing up, at the back of every seat, there were tithing envelopes that you would put your money in. I would pull out as many tithing envelopes as I possibly could, and I would start to draw pictures, and it would be whatever was on my mind or my heart at the time. I would draw the Ninja Turtles, Leonardo, Michelangelo fighting Shredder. I would draw Batman and Robin and all that stuff, and, and normally, you know, this would kind of be a no-no, but I very quickly learned the key to being able to survive these services and have permission from my mom and my, my grandma to draw. So what you would do is, when you grab the tithing envelope, you got you to prepare, because you pay tic-tac-toe with yourself and beat yourself and try to find new ways. Like, but here, here's the key to having the permission to do this. You pull the first tithing envelope, and the very first picture you draw is of Jesus doing something cool. And so you take a tithing envelope and you're like, I'm going to draw a picture of Jesus. He's feeding the 5,000 people. And you just stash that one away. And so then when the pastor's preaching and, and he's, you know, give, giving it everything he's got and your mom or your grandma starts to nudge you, they're like, hey, pay attention. I'm like, what are you doing? Why are you drawing? I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was just, ding, drawing this. It's just a picture of Jesus. It was on my heart. And so that's what, sorry, you're right. I'll pay attention. And, you know, they immediately they're just like, my son is a prophet. Like, <laughs> he is eight years old, he is anointed, and he is drawing pictures of Jesus. That is incredible. And you're like, sucka, like, back to Ninja Turtles, you know? Like, so that's how you survive. Another thing, being a church kid, you learned that if the service was to endure till six or seven at night, you had to survive on the only food available at church. Now, I know you're gonna think I'm saying communion, but I'm not. You, you, hey, David did it, it's all right. Um, you would find some elderly ladies in the crowd, and every single one of them, doesn't matter what church you're in, they, they had a bag, and they had these red, hard cinnamon candies 
And you would just feed yourself. You're like, well, I'm not getting out of here anytime soon. I need to eat. So, and literally, out of all the candies, the thousands and thousands of candy available in the world, didn't matter. Red hard cinnamon candy is like the staple church candy that they sell. So you would just identify, you're like, all right, there's my grandma. She's got some. There's Miss Mary. She takes care of that. Oh, I'm going to identify her. And then you just kind of crawl around the pews and sneak in and grab one. And you're like, all right, this will give me another 15 minutes before I pass out from this two-hour <laughs> sermon. So, But being a church kid, you learn some things. You learn the rules of survival. There's one thing, though. You could never anticipate, and it would always kind of catch you by surprise. And um, I, I don't want to over-exaggerate. This happens frequently. I would say every month, but I feel like the pastors and the board like, want to keep you on your toes, so they do it like a month and every five or six weeks or something like that. How many people can relate to the post-church potluck luncheon? The post-church potluck, you're like, three-hour service is done, I'm going home, psych, like, potluck. Now, first off, what is a luncheon? Like, why can't it just be a lunch? Like, what is a luncheon? And why don't we actually call it what we're all thinking, the meal that nobody actually wants to go to unless you're over the age of 65? Like, that's kind of like what this thing was. The post-church luncheon, and catch you by surprise every time. And here is what the post-church luncheon looked like. Everybody in the church would bring a crock pot or this thing. And if you know this for real, this is going to bless my soul. If you know this, a covered dish. How many people in here know what a covered dish is? That is like a thing in Virginia, a covered dish. Everybody would bring uh, their crock pots or their covered dishes. And if you didn't bring one, you get hated on. And, um, and you would like set it out in the lobby or like a big meeting area. If your church had a gym, you'd put it in the gym. And then you get your paper plates and your forks and you'd line up. And for whatever reason, like all the older people would go first and you're like eight years old and shaking because like your blood sugar is like low. <laughs> but you would like go through line and you would, you know, eat the, the covered dish. And I don't know why, but there are two key ingredients to every single covered dish under the sun mayonnaise and cheese don't ask me why but every covered dish involves mayonnaise and cheese it is like a starch loads of mayonnaise sprinkle cheese and then maybe something else and you bake it and everybody's like cool with that like that is just like church food 101 and I was as I was prepping for this message and I was reflecting back on my church experience or baggage whatever you want to call it um I started kind of thinking, like, man, like, this is, this, you know, church luncheon, like, that's, that's kind of weird, but um, my church, the reason that they did this was because at this point in time, it was their expression of community to, to my congregation. Growing up, we didn't really have, like, life groups or anything like that, and so this post-church luncheon, this post-church lunch was my church's way of allowing people to do more than just sit in the pews and kind of know the people that they sit by. It was a way for them to allow other people to engage in community. And I started to think about sort of the evolution of community, at least with my church experience. And it started as a kid and during the luncheons post-church, 
Um, and then when I went to college, I actually started to attend rather larger churches. And this was kind of when the quote-unquote megachurch phenomenon was sort of taking off. And a lot of my friends uh, were kind of around, the, they grew up around the area that I went to college. And so they were like previously involved in churches. And so I just kind of went to church with my friends. And so I started going to what we would call today, I guess, a megachurch. And, and so my friends, they were doing internships, they were in Kids Rock, and they were doing like youth program stuff. They were helping out and this church at least when I first started going their form of community for their congregation was simply the large Sunday service there was an auditorium at one church that I went to that sat just under 2,000 people they did like three or four services and for them their expression of community was just coming together and engaging in a Sunday service with the person you sat by well as these churches continued to grow they realized, hey, we need to give people more of an opportunity to kind of engage in life together. And so they kind of took this big Sunday experience and whittled it down, and they kind of came up with this idea that even we at Red Rocks participate in now called small groups or life groups. It's kind of like coming together in somebody's home or wherever and, and taking the big service and making it a little smaller. And there are people in this room tonight, and I'm one of these people, that love large gatherings. Like, I get energy from being in a room of 1,000 people, 2,000 people. Like, in my mind, like, that's potential people to meet. That's, like, new relationships to have. That's, like, network opportunities, like, new hands to shake. Like, I feel kind of involved and, like, plugged in when I, when I take part in large crowds and, like, in like gatherings. That, that, that's how I feel. But there are other people uh, that love equally the smaller groups. There are other people that love when a community like this is shrunken down in a home, maybe 5, 10, 15 people around a table. This is my wife, like, to a T. Like, she loves, like, sitting around a table and hearing your story and hearing, like, every minute of your story, like, and getting to know you on, like, a personal level. Like, and the thing that I love about the Bible and the thing that I love about Jesus is that Jesus is actually all about the large crowd as well as the small group in the home. Jesus places proper value on the gathering of a large crowd, and he also places tons of value on the gathering inside of a home. I think a lot of times in churches, um, because we have the privilege nowadays to like go to a bunch of different churches, whatever we like, we kind of think that it's like an either or kind of thing. Like, oh, I want the big church or I either want the smaller church. But in God's eyes, there's value in both expressions of community in a large room gathering and a small house around a table or in, in a group of couches or whatever. And so I want to go back to Matthew chapter 4 and 5 and kind of look at this little story really quick of Jesus. And it says this, Matthew 4, it says this. A great crowd, great crowd started to follow Jesus from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem, Judea and beyond the Jordan. And seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on a mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them. So Jesus, he comes on the scene as a teacher. Now, teachers in those days, they were held with very high esteem. That doesn't mean that Jesus was rich. The Bible makes it clear he was not wealthy. However, they had a lot of honor, sort of a lot of clout in their society. And so Jesus, being a teacher, starts to do what he does best. He starts to teach the people. 
And the way that he teaches people is so different from the way that everybody else is used to being taught. There's something so compelling about what Jesus is saying to people that he actually starts to gather large crowds. And not only is he gathering large crowds because of his teaching, but he's actually backing up the words that he's saying by performing miracles and by healing people. And so when Jesus would come into town, news would get out pretty quick and it would kind of cause like a ruckus and a stir. And so people would want to be around him. Everybody would want to go and be around Jesus and hear him talk and hear what he had to say and see the miracles that he would perform. And apparently... So many people would gather around Jesus that he would actually have to hike up on top of a mountain. I'm on a little hike right there. And he'd have to engage the crowd from a mountaintop or a hilltop because there are so many people. He wanted to give everybody the opportunity to hear him, to hear what he had to say. And the Bible actually says there were multiple times while Jesus was up on the mountain where there would be up to 5,000 people that would come and listen to Jesus. Now in that day, and I believe it was due to tax purposes, it was a patriarchal society, when they said there were 5,000 people, what they were saying is there were 5,000 men in attendance. Now women were allowed to be a part of this, and so were children. And so let's just use our imagination for a minute. At minimum, there were 5,000 people that would gather as Jesus was on a mountain or a hill to hear him talk. And at max, there could be anywhere from seven to 10,000 people that would gather to hear what Jesus had to say and to maybe see him perform a miracle. Now, just for perspective's sake, look around the room. Imagine a crowd five to 10 times larger than this one coming and wanting to hear Jesus talk. And so naturally, Jesus had to get to a place where everybody had the equal opportunity to hear what he had to say. And now with this many people gathering, this could cause kind of a problem, right? Like this could cause like, you know, hard to like know everybody's name or like Jesus to shake everybody's hand, although he's Jesus, he probably knows our, everybody's name already. But Peter or John would be like, hey, I can't meet all these people. And so there would be issues like these people would come and they'd stay for days apparently and they would need to be fed and so Jesus would feed them and there's a time when Peter actually comes and he's like there are so many people here what are we going to do with all them and it says that Jesus's heart in his heart he welcomed them and he looked out and he saw them as a shepherd would see people and it said that whenever these people were in need Jesus would perform miracles he'd break bread he'd he'd divide fish and feed people Jesus loved gathering large crowds to engage with them. But why did he love it? Like in a world where Jesus, there's no way, I mean, outside of being the son of God, could know everybody's name, shake everybody's hand, meet everybody's need. What was so special about the community that Jesus found on the mountaintop? And I think it's this, the community that comes from the mountaintop is one that is welcoming to every single person. So take a look at this room and picture this as our mountaintop. In this room, it is welcoming. It is open to every single person that wants to come. And here, the value in the community found on a mountaintop setting is that it's open to every single person. And it gives us this greater sense of that we are more together. Like imagine these people up on the mountain and they're like, oh, 
you believe in Jesus too? I didn't know that. Like, oh my gosh. And like, and then like, let's say maybe Jesus can't get to you and perform a miracle for you, but did you hear like Jesus performed a miracle for that person? Like, that builds my faith. Like, there is a faith element. There's a faith-building element and community found in the crowd and community found in large groups on the mountaintop. There's value in community in the mountain. And to some people, the mountaintop crowd is faith-building. It's engaging. It's challenging. But the cool thing about Jesus is that he doesn't just value the community found in large numbers and the community found on the mountaintop. It says this in Matthew 5. We see Jesus up on the mountain, and he's teaching to thousands of people. And uh, all throughout Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7, Jesus is giving what would be the most famous sermon he's ever given. It's literally called the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mountain. And it's where he gives the Beatitudes. It's, it's the most famous sermon Jesus gives. And then in Matthew chapter 8, the very first words it says, it says this, but Jesus came down from the mountain. And all through Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is walking around the city and he's healing people and he's meeting needs. And it actually says he gets into a boat and he sails over to another region. And when he gets off his boat, um, there are two demon-possessed people and Jesus releases these people from, from demonic possessions. But Jesus is headed somewhere. And in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, we kind of see where Jesus is headed. He's going off the mountain, and we find him at another location, another location of equal and great significance to him. Matthew chapter 9, let's read. As Jesus passed from here to there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, hey, Matthew, come and follow me. And Matthew got up and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table, or it literally says at table, I don't know why, but as Jesus reclined at the table in his house, and Luke chapter 6 actually shares this story, and it says that this is, this is taking place at Matthew's house. When Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, it says Matthew gets up, he leaves everything, and he goes to his home and prepares food for Jesus. And so this is all taking place at Matthew's house. It says, as Jesus was reclining at his table, behold, many tax collectors... And sinners came, and they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why do your teacher eat with such people, tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, Jesus, he said, Those who are well don't have a need of a physician. Those who are sick do. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not just to call the righteous, but the sinner as well. And so we see that Jesus, he finds value in the community on the mountain, the large crowds. But Jesus also finds value in the community that you can get in a home. And before we wrap up, I kind of want to break this story down for a minute because I think it's of crazy importance and significance. Now, Jesus, he was walking around probably the Sea of Galilee because Jesus actually didn't stray too far uh, from certain areas when he did his ministry. And so Jesus is walking around and he sees this guy named Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. And he walks up to him and he says, hey, Matthew, come and follow me. Now, I mentioned earlier that Jesus was a teacher. And in this society, the teachers were the upper echelon of society. And again, that doesn't mean that they were necessarily rich. It just means that they were honored. They were held with esteem because people found value that they were like the caretakers of the word of God. But Matthew was a tax collector. 
And in this day and age, tax collectors were the absolute lowest of the low. Like literally on the same level as like a terrorist, like a radical terrorist in this society. It's how people viewed them. And so as Jesus, in their, in their culture, Matthew, he was considered a thief. He was considered a traitor to his countrymen. Because what happened is Rome came in, they conquered Israel, and they kind of set up governors and providences. And what Matthew was, he was a Jew that went to these Roman officials and said, hey, let me help you out. I'm going to collect your taxes and I'll be the one that gives it to you. In return, let me charge my own tax on top of the tax that you charge so that I can make money and that I can get rich. And they were like, okay, sounds good. And they actually, apparently they did such a good job. The system worked out in such a way that let's say Peter comes back from a day of fishing and he goes to Matthew's tax booth and Matthew's like, okay, you caught 10 fish. You owe the Roman government three and you owe me two. And Peter's like, why the heck would I give you any? And he's Uh, Matthew had the authority of the Roman government to enforce his tax upon Peter. So if Peter didn't give Matthew whatever number he made up that day that was his, Peter could actually be taken to jail or killed. And so, as you could tell, these people were hostile to tax collectors. So much so that scholars say that in this culture, prostitutes, because they, they weren't in such a sexualized culture as we were. Sex was a very private thing. It wasn't something paraded around. In this culture, prostitutes and tax collectors weren't even allowed to go to church anymore. And so Matthew, he's sitting in his tax collector's booth, probably hasn't been to church in years. And Jesus himself, God, walks by and passes him and says, Matthew, hey, come and follow me. And 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 Matthew knows who Jesus is. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher of God's word. And so the Bible says he gets up and immediately starts to follow Jesus. And I I love Matthew's response. He's like, yep, I'm there. I'll follow you. Hey, as a matter of fact, like I'm actually going to go cook you dinner. Come over to my house. And so Matthew's my kind of guy. I love food. Like I would love to have Matthew follow me and have dinner at his house 24-7. But he gets up and he's like, hey, come over. And Jesus is like, okay, I'll come over. And the next scene we get, it's kind of like an abrupt change, but the next scene we get, we see Jesus walking around calling this disreputable person, this person that other people hate and don't want to associate with. And the next thing we see, Jesus is reclining at his table in Matthew's house with all of his other outlaws and sinner friends and tax collectors. Now, in this culture, to step through the doorframe of somebody's home had much more significance than it does right now. Like sometimes when we go over to somebody's house to share a meal, it's because we forgot to buy groceries or they're having a party and whatever. But to walk through the doorframe of somebody's home in this culture spoke volumes of your acquaintance, of your, of your intention with this person. When you walk to the door of somebody's home, there is an immediate association and relationship made. And so Jesus, as he walks through the door of Matthew's home, this is what he's saying. He's saying, Matthew, hey, I called you to come and follow me, to associate with me. But you better believe I'm not ashamed or afraid to associate with you as well. I called you to be a follower of me, but I'm going to put myself in your world as well. 
The moment Jesus walked through that doorframe, he was making a statement to that society about his intention and relationship with Matthew. There's a closeness that comes when you share somebody's home, when you walk into somebody's home. Now, teachers and rabbis in this society never did this. That very seldomly. Now, sometimes uh, some of my research said that teachers and rabbis would go to homes, but they would make like house visits. Like if the faithful tithe-paying churchgoer was sick that day and couldn't make it to church, you would go to their house and pray for them. But never would a teacher associate themselves and step into the home of a sinner and a tax collector that's too strong of an association that they weren't willing to make. And so as Jesus calls Matthew to follow him and goes into Matthew's house and steps through the doorframe of his house, Jesus is saying, hey, I am a friend of Matthew. I am a friend of Matthew. I am okay being known as Jesus, the friend of sinners and the friend of tax collectors. And we all have acquaintances, right? We all have like friends that aren't like really, really friends. Like you might have friends that you work with that you like, come on. Oh, hi, Sharon. How's your kid? How's your dog? Okay. Don't really care. Like whatever, like punch in at nine, leave at five. Or maybe you got friends like that at church where it's good to see them like every once in a while, but you don't necessarily go out of your way to like spend time with them. Everybody's got friends like that. Maybe. I don't know. I got friends like that. None of you guys though. No. Everybody's got acquaintances, right? But there's something different that happens in your relationship when you step through the door frame, you walk through the front door of somebody's home. The community that's found on the mountain gives us a greater sense of, of purpose, togetherness, of, uh, of large community. The community that's found walking through a door frame is what takes a large group shrunken down. It takes acquaintances and the friendships. And what Jesus is declaring in this moment as he walks through the door of Matthew's house is, Matthew, you're going to follow me, but I'm cool with being your friend too. And I know that might sound weird. We normally think of these disciples like looking up to Jesus and maybe mimicking him, but Jesus was literally a friend of sinners. And band, you guys can slowly make your way on out. The community that's found in a home takes acquaintances and turns them into friendships, but Jesus He's not just at Matthew's house to stop in, say a quick prayer, be like, hey, Matthew, now that you're following me, I'm teaching, see you Galilee, 6.30, be there, take notes, all right? Like, it wasn't one of those. The Bible actually says that Jesus has dinner with Matthew, that Jesus has dinner. And think about this. Jesus and his disciples have dinner with Matthew. Now, literally, Jesus gathered some of his disciples in the exact same place that he called Matthew to come and follow him. And so Jesus' disciples were fishermen. There is a real chance that these guys interacted with Matthew on a daily, weekly basis and probably weren't too fond of him because he frequently stole from them. What like an awkward dinner, right? Oh, hey, man, like, are hey, you going to tax my shoes? Like, walking in your house, too? Like, freaking jerk. Like, but think about that. The Bible says that Jesus and his disciples are reclining at Matthew's table. Now, the word recline had two significances. One, it showed a very comfortable nature with somebody else. And two, it was held 
uh, people would recline instead of sit at festival dinners. And so this was a celebration dinner. Jesus coming over to Matthew's house, this was a celebration. And apparently Jesus felt really comfortable being in Matthew's home, sitting at his table, breaking bread and eating with Matthew. Now, according to the Israeli Institution of Jewish Studies, the act of sharing a meal with someone at their table had endless social meaning behind it. The sharing of a meal, it was an affirmation of friendship. It was saying, hey, like you and I, we're good. We're close. This table means we're good. Like we're close. We're friends. The sharing of a meal in this culture, it, it was a resolution of conflict. If you had conflict with somebody or hostility towards somebody, when you figured it out, you shared a meal together to celebrate. But get this, this is insane. To sit and to share a meal at someone's table was to show and acknowledge and share in your social status. Jesus, upper echelon of society, honored, dignified, people respected what he did, was willing to say, hey, Matthew, I'm not just your friend. I'm not just your acquaintance. Like, you're in, man. You're in. We're in this together. You're, you're family now. Like when we eat together, I'm sharing my status with you. And isn't that, isn't that what Jesus does? The Bible says that he who knew no sin actually became sin. So Jesus actually took on Matthew's status sitting at this table. While Matthew would have taken on part of Jesus's status at the table. And there's something so amazing about sitting at the table, Jesus, in this one act of sitting down and having dinner with somebody, Jesus was preaching the gospel to Matthew. That Matthew, I am the son of God. I am God himself. And I want you to come and follow me. And Matthew, I'm going to come into your home because I'm not ashamed of you. And guess what, Matthew? We're going to break bread together because you and I, we're family now. Matthew, you and I are family. There's no difference between us now. Jesus and eating around a table with a tax collector was preaching the gospel louder than probably any words would have affected Matthew's heart in that moment. The Israeli Institute continues to say that, that everything in the Israeli Hebrew culture of that time had spiritual significance. Everything was spiritual. And they said this, and this is one of the most profound, incredible statements I've read in a long time. It said, in this culture, the dinner table had very little difference. There was no separation between the dinner table and the altar at that time. That's how, that's how much esteem was put at being in somebody's home and sharing a meal with somebody. There was no separation between the dinner table and the altar that you worshiped at in this culture. And so think about this. This man, Matthew, hated by every single person in his country, hasn't been to church in years. Jesus is like, hey, that's cool. We'll have church at your house. Hey, we'll, we'll turn this table into an altar. And Matthew, I'm going to come into your home and I'm turning this place into a church and you are welcome and your friends are welcome. And as a matter of fact, I'm inviting everybody to your house because everybody is welcome at this table. 
the dinner table, it's, it's an equalizer, right? At this table, it doesn't matter if you're the richest person at the table or the most poor person at this table. For the most part, we're all eating the same thing. At this table, this table helps celebrate our differences. I think we live in a culture today that, that wants to kind of pretend like there are no differences among us and that's like socially acceptable. Here's the thing, there are differences between my, I am a white Caucasian male. I am not an African-American male. I'm not a Mexican male. I'm not a Vietnamese male. There's differences among our culture, but the beauty of the kingdom of God, especially around this table, is that those differences help us see the beauty that God intended them to because while we're different, we're all family at the table of God. And it's so cool because the first act, this is what I love about the book of Revelation. It says that every tribe and tongue will be represented in heaven. I love that because I think sometimes just in my naiveness, I think that everybody's going to get there and speak English. But everybody's going to speak the language they naturally spoke. Like that only makes sense, right? And think about this. One of the very first acts in heaven as we sit down and we have dinner together. The marriage supper of the lamb is what it's called. We, we break bread and we eat and we drink together. And it's an act of God saying like, hey, this is the altar. Like this is a part of worshiping together in heaven. The community that's found on the mountain gives a greater picture of who we are together. It builds our faith. The community found walking through somebody's home takes acquaintances into friends, but the dinner table, or maybe you don't actually have a table, but maybe it's couches, maybe it's chairs. At the table, friends turn into family and everybody is welcome at the table. I remember, and I'm wrapping up with this, I moved out to Colorado and I was the only person in my immediate family and even my greater family that, that has taken the plunge and moved from Virginia. Now, we all know Virginia is God's country, right? Can I get an amen? Amen. All right. Um, but I was the first person to kind of move and I came out here with dreams in my heart and I came out here to be a part of a church plant and I was so pumped and we were gonna reach the world and I came out here with one of my best friends and I was gonna meet my beautiful wife, which I actually did end up meeting, and, but life was gonna be good out here until it wasn't. And I found myself working two or three jobs and being a part of a church plant that I actually didn't enjoy being around that ended up falling apart. And I was kind of getting on my last leg. I didn't know if I could do it anymore. I didn't know if I could survive out here anymore. And there was this one moment. So, so the first Thanksgiving that I ever had in Denver is kind of pathetic. I want you guys to feel bad for me. Me and my friend, my roommate, we get invited over to this guy's house that we are starting the church with. And they accidentally gave us the wrong address. And so they said, hey, bring a drink and bring an appetizer. And so my friend and I get in his truck. I grab a Mountain Dew because I'm just classy like that. And my friend grabs um, some puff pastries that have to be baked from Costco. We're rolling, you know? And so we're heading up like an hour into the mountains, like somewhere near Silverthorne, and we pull up to the address, and there's nothing there. It's like an empty parking lot. And I like call the guy, and I'm like, 
hey, we're here. Like, where the heck is your house? And he's like, where are you? And I'm like, well, up in the mountain somewhere. He's like, oh, dude, like, we're in Aurora. Like, where are you? And I was like, dude, I followed the directions you gave me. And he, and he looked and he's like, I'm so sorry I gave you the wrong directions. And as a, as a what, 22-year-old kid out here, first time, don't have enough money to fly back home to see my family, like my soul was crushed. And my roommate and I are driving back in his truck, fighting off tears, chugging Mountain Dew and eating raw pastry. <laughs> Not kidding. One of the worst, most depressing days of my life. Next year rolls around. Started to get involved at young adults, but I'm still having a hard time. I'm working three or four jobs and I start making friends. Um, you know, I start making acquaintances, I should say. And there was this girl that I met who's married to one of my best friends. Her name's Whitney Conrad's her super jacked, good looking husband. And, um, but I started making friends with her and her sisters and her mom. I met her mom and she would actually message me on Facebook and encourage me. And I don't think she kind of knew, like, what she was doing at the moment, but she reminded me of my mom and my grandma. And I remember one day her mom messaged me and then she came up at Young Adults, her and her sisters, and said, hey, we're having uh, people over for Thanksgiving. Would you want to come over for Thanksgiving? And I remember, you know, I got to play it off and try to act cool. Like I got a lot of stuff going on. And I was like, well, I'll see if I can fit it in. But inside I was like, oh my gosh, there's literally nothing more I would rather do in my entire life. And I remember my roommate and I are driving to the right address this time. <laughs> I remember sitting outside of their house and just like, man, I miss home. I miss my family. I miss my mom. I miss my grandparents. Like, I just want to go home. And I remember walking into the house and there were tables set and there were dinner plates and there were card games and there were board games. And I'll, I'll literally never forget to the day I die, I remember sitting there at this table. You kind of feel a little uncomfortable, right? In somebody else's table, you don't know all the rules or whatever, but it felt like my home. It felt like family. And I remember talking to her sister, talking to her dad, and I just had this moment of like, yeah, I can do this. Like, I'm gonna be okay. And it didn't happen in a church service. Although great crowds, big crowds, they're amazing. It came when I was extended community through a front door and a dinner table. And what's amazing is that's the opportunity that we have tonight as we walk out into the lobby. Acquaintances can become friends. Friends can become family. Conrad and Whitney, they're not my friends, they're my family. They were, they were there for me when I didn't even know I needed somebody to be there. That's what community is all about. That's what life groups is all about. It's about sharing your life with other people. If you all would stand, I want to pray. I don't know why, I just feel like in my heart today, I've just had this thought of like, I don't know, like sometimes like what we do can feel routine. Like, oh, it's a life group launch. Like that's just like routine, right? Like and maybe I just feel like there's some people in here tonight, two things. One, you've been hesitant to sign up for a life group because you just didn't know if you wanted to deal with it, if you wanted to make that commitment. You've been having that conversation in your head as you came here. I challenge you, make that commitment. It'll change your life. It'll change your life. There's value in this community, in the mountaintop community, but there's value at community at the table as well. 
And the second thing, you've been hesitating. The second thing I've had on my heart a lot today is some of you don't want to join a life group because you feel like your story is just too dark. You feel like there's too many scars. You feel like you've done too many things wrong. You feel like you're going to walk in and carry the most baggage. You don't have all your stuff figured out. That's exactly what people in this room are here for. Nobody's perfect. Matthew, not perfect. You know what made him perfect? Jesus. You know what happens when you invite people in your home? Jesus is there. The Bible says where two or more are gathered, I am there. When you open up your home, when you sit down at your dinner table, Jesus is with you. He makes all things new. He makes all things perfect. I challenge you, take the step. Join a group tonight. There's power. There's life change in community. Can we pray and then we're gonna worship God. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. God, we're so thankful that we get the opportunity to come to a place every single Thursday that's a mountaintop experience. God, the thousands of people that come through these doors, there's faith building. It's, it's, it challenges us to pursue God more with the people around us, but God, you walked through a door and said, hey, I wanna to relate to somebody. You sat down at a table and said, hey, you're family. God, I just want to challenge every single person in here to make that step. Go from acquaintance to friend. Go from friend to family. Lord, we love you so much. It is our honor to worship you. We pray that we just lift your name higher and your Holy Spirit comes and does only what he can do. It's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.